Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This podcast is part of a partnership between TEDx St Kilda and 3CR Radio. I'm Squirrel Maine, and in this podcast, we hear an interview with TEDx speaker Dr. Jeanette Pritchard from the Monash Vision Group discussing bionic eyes. Firstly, I actually have a family history of blindness. So my father's two brothers are both blind uh, back in the UK, and um, they have a genetic disorder called retinitis pigmentosa that they discovered they had when they were in their late teens. So gradually over a number of decades, they've lost their vision and both now have guide dogs. Um, both still very active. It doesn't really impact on the way they live their lives too much. But so, of course, I've always been aware of the difficulties that blindness, the, the impact it can have. But my background is actually in uh, medical device development and healthcare device development anyway. So I, I have a scientific background and then moved into industry to do more product development than research. Um, and when I moved to Australia about nine years ago now, became more involved in the medical device side of, of things and in management of programs. So when this program was funded by the federal government back in 2010, it ticked a lot of boxes in terms of what I'd like to do with my career. Oh, nice. Now, commercialization of medical devices it's contentious in, in a country of socialized medicine. And what do you think of that? Is it, it privatization of medical devices a good thing? Oh, I think that there are so many challenges. I mean, the, the costs associated with developing a device or any kind of medical technology is so large that those funds have to come from somewhere and we can't expect the taxpayer and government to provide all of that. For example, to, to date, our program, we've required around $3 million per year to run our program and we don't have anything in excess of what we need. So there are large costs and we're now five years in and it will certainly be another number of years before we can actually bring this device to the clinic. So the costs are very high and so it actually requires some level of commercial input or investment to be able to get these devices through to the people that need them. And is it working? Are you successfully attracting the funders? We're in um, in a tricky phase at the moment. Um, it's an interesting phase because we're in the transition from um, what has been more of a research program when we first started through to now something where we have a device, we need to get it through to the clinic. So we we have been government funded up until last year, but then really there comes a stage where you can't keep relying on government funding. So um, so then you have to look at other op- options for funding the program. But of course, investors want a, a certain amount of de-risking to happen before they will put their funding towards it. So we're actually at the moment funded through donations. We have donations that will see us through to our first implantation in our first participants next year. Um, and at that stage, it may be that then we look for alternative funding through either commercial partners or through more traditional investment. Well, now when you say first participants, I can't help but think, so you're going to put bionic eyes into real people. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Have, are people lining up to volunteer for this? Or? They really are. It's incredible. We get inquiries from all around the world virtually every day from people that are willing to be a participant in, in the studies. 
which is really amazing. Our device actually gets implanted into the brain, into where vision is processed in the brain. So people are putting themselves forward to undergo neurosurgery because it's so important to them to get some vision back. So, I mean, these people are amazing. And first up, we'll be looking for people locally in Melbourne and, and around Australia because we'll need to provide them with a lot of support from the medical and the clinical team. But of course, ultimately, the aim is to take the technology worldwide to anybody that, that might need it. Like the cochlear implant. But exactly, yeah. How long do you think before you're bringing bionic eyes to the world? <laughs> well, um, with our first participants' um, trials due to begin next year, they need to run for at least a couple of years and then we need to broaden those to more people and to more trial sites. So those first implants will be done at the Alfred Hospital here in Melbourne. But then we need to look at other facilities that can also implant people around the world. So we're looking at at least um, another few years before we can go for our regulatory approvals through the, the various regulatory bodies around the world. And then beyond that, then it's a matter of actually um, getting it to the clinic and, and receiving the funding to allow us to manufacture the devices and implant the patients. And these devices, you described them in your talk. Can you briefly just describe them again? Sure. So all bionic eye devices really have some quite similar elements. So they all start off with a camera that's either located somewhere on the head, usually on a pair of glasses that, that just sit um, as a normal pair of glasses would sit on the head. And then um, the camera images are taken through to a processor unit, which processes the data from the camera and, and basically downsizes it and pulls out the most important features from the environment that can then be presented to the implant. So once that's happened, the new data is then transmitted wirelessly from a coil that sits at the back of the head through to the implant, which has been placed into the brain. And the implant is a series of, we call them tiles. So they're very small, um, nine millimeter by nine millimeter devices. And each of these tiles has its own wireless receiver, its own electronics that sit within it, and also electrodes that penetrate into the brain and actually stimulate the neurons. For every electrode that's implanted, we'll um, be able to produce a single percept of light, so a flash of light. So obviously the more electrodes we can implant, the better the vision that we can provide to the person using it. Is there a trade-off, like if you implant too many electrodes, the downsize is doesn't fit on their brain or like what's Yeah, the... that's absolutely right. So the the system in terms of its electronics has been designed to support up to 11 tiles and each tile has 43 electrodes. So that's a few, a few hundred electrodes in total. But the visual cortex in each person is a little bit different. So it's a different size, slightly different shape. And so we won't necessarily be able to put the same number of tiles into each person. Of course, our neurosurgeon is incredibly skilled and he'll be able to determine the maximum number of tiles that can go in. We're expecting with first participants that it might be between four and six tiles. That's exciting. 66 is. flashes of lights is better than... <laughs> it, it, it's, and that, that's the key, I guess, that it seems very low resolution to somebody with full vision, but to somebody with no vision, it's a huge amount of information. And it, it can really transform somebody's ability to navigate their environment and to even maybe become employed, whereas previously they might not have had the confidence to engage in that environment. When this is all said and done, what's next on the plate for you? 
<laughs> That's a great question. I mean, I, I'm really looking forward to the next stage of this project where we actually do start to engage with, with people and understand exactly what the device can um, can do. I'm very, very passionate about health technologies, um, not just devices like this that are really very sophisticated, but also um more simplistic devices that can have a huge impact on people. So my background is actually in diagnostics and in um, diagnosing proteins in the blood that can detect if someone's had a heart attack. Or um, and, and there are lots of different styles of that kind of device that actually can be produced really quite low cost. But the problem is actually rolling them out to different environments where they're needed. So getting them to people, for example, in rural and remote communities, there are a lot of challenges with that that aren't necessarily linked with the devices themselves. So I'm very passionate about all of that. I, I'm really wanting to stay and, and keep working in health technologies, whether it's on this project, which I'd um, you know, hoping that I will still be involved with over the next few years or in something else that brings benefit to people. How did you end up in Melbourne in the first place? Oh, well, I was in a small company in the UK and an opportunity came up to join a, actually a state, a Victorian state government company or organisation that had been established to look for commercial opportunities around the different universities in Melbourne and different research organisations. And they were looking for somebody to come in and really drive their devices and diagnostics portfolio. So I applied for that role and was really fortunate that they were willing to, to employ someone that they'd never met before. And, and so I relocated over, over to Melbourne back in 2006. I just jumped across the ditch. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I'd what do you see is next on the cards like in, in Australia and in Victoria for if the bionic eye comes out, what might be after the bionic eye? I think that we've got so much capability and knowledge here, you know, and that really started before but was was critical the the development that cochlear did that laid a foundation and we've now built on it further with the bionic eye programs that there's a huge amount of capability here in medical devices and i really think that we need to just really push that and build on it as much as we can um, because we could potentially have, you know, be a world leader in the medical device industry, which would be wonderful because it would offer so many opportunities for employment and new technologies um, to be brought through to the market. There's a lot of discussion at the moment around things like personalised medicine, linking all the developments in mobile wireless technologies in with healthcare and giving people access to their own records and giving people a little bit more autonomy as to how they manage their own health and their own diagnosis. I think that's really exciting that there needs to be some scrutiny around how it's managed to make sure that, that, that just the risks are, are managed carefully. But I think that's really exciting as well. Yeah. Would you, would you use it yourself, a mobile app? <laughs> I, depending on what it was, yes, I probably would. <laughs> I'm one of those terrible people that um, that diagnose myself whenever the, I get any symptom. I'm straight on Google looking at what it is. So. Makes you a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> In general, this clearly must take up a lot of your time. Just looking on the personal side of your life, 
hobbies? What do you do for fun? Oh, I'm, I'm a budding, very amateurish photographer. So I have a couple of friends who um, are teaching me lots about photography. And I really love that we go out for photo walks around Melbourne. And um, we recently did one around the University of Melbourne and all the beautiful old buildings. So, um, so I'm trying to improve my skills there. I'm also a huge fan of classic films. So I, I do go along to the cinema I, I love all the film festivals so spend a lot of time doing that um you could spend all your time doing that oh, so i've yeah. seen your trend here is images bionic eyes films yeah photography. i haven't <laughs> thought of that actually but yeah so they're probably what i would spend most of my time outside of work doing yeah speaking of you mentioned your family are your father's brothers using the guide dogs is the objective then to have the bionic eye ready enough to to be able to put it in their eyes I mean, that would be wonderful. And I think that um, certainly the device that, that our group has developed could be used for people with retinitis pigmentosa, uh, but also for people with damaged optic nerves and maybe even people that have traumatic had traumatic injury to their eyes and lost their eyes um, completely. I'm pretty sure that one of my uncles... He's hanging out for something like a stem cell therapy or a gene therapy. He'd like to have sort of more natural vision I guess um, and I'm not sure about my other uncle whether he'd be open to it or not but um, <laughs> but look they, they certainly track all the developments and there are some trials happening where they're based in England um, with different devices and technologies as well so they keep a, a close watch on what's happening there. Collaboration is so important and I think we'll see this more and more as more medical devices are developed and um, uh, these systems are really complex and, and there's certainly a realisation that no one group or no one expert can do everything uh, and that also goes for the sectors it needs to be um, very collaborative between academia and and the industry side but also then the clinical side and the importance of having um, surgeons involved in the design of the device so to make sure that they can actually implant it um, and that it's actually relevant for the people for whom you're developing it. How do they test the first few? Currently, we're right in the middle of doing all of the testing and it's a huge program. So, of course, we have to show through a lot of bench electrical testing that it's actually safe, that the voltages and currents that are being used aren't dangerous for somebody and that the device actually has a long lifespan so that we can implant it and know that it will still function after a number of years. So that's all done through various um, experiments where we immerse the, the tiles into to solutions and leave them for months on end and keep testing them and making sure that they still function. Um, but also we rely a lot on our suppliers to do a lot of quality control testing throughout the assembly process of the devices to make sure that at each stage it still does what it's supposed to do. It's meant to do, yes. Yeah. And then that first like cut into a human, you just... Yeah, look, this is where the, the neurosurgical input is so important because uh, as, you know, as a scientific group, the, the people doing the development around the device itself just don't necessarily understand the limitations and the requirements of a surgeon. So we, um, our neurosurgeon, Professor Jeffrey Rosenfeld, has spent a lot of time talking to us about what can and can't be used with the device. And then, of course, everyone else goes away and tries to figure out how that can work with, with the design. Can we you certainly... give a, an example of that? Like... 
Oh, so um, the tiles are actually implanted underneath the skull in, in the brain. And so there are restrictions as to how much space is available and how large the tiles can be and still be implanted and not actually cause any damage. Professor Rosenfeld has basically given us dimensions and said, well, you can't go thicker than this, you can't go wider than this, because if you do, I won't be able to implant it. So then we have to go away and miniaturise everything to fit within that space, which is... Um, and when I say we, I'm actually talking about our engineers and, and our um, our clinical scientists because I manage the programme. I actually don't do any of the the work itself. So, yeah. Um, so that input is incredibly important. Well, thank you so much for coming in and taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. You've just been listening to Dr. Jeanette Pritchard from the Monash Vision Group. Jeanette was a speaker who took part in the March 2015 TEDx St. Kilda Talks. You can hear Jeanette's full talk as well as other great speakers at TEDxStKilda.com. This interview originally aired on 3CR Radio on the 24th of June 2015 and is part of a partnership between 3CR and TEDx St. Kilda. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.